Hello, and welcome to the Calvary Chapel Southeast podcast. Thank you for joining us for our study through the book of 1 Corinthians. This letter was written by the Apostle Paul to the struggling church in Corinth. They were allowing the culture to influence them more than they were impacting the world. As a result, the church was crumbling. Paul's strong words of rebuke and encouragement teach us many things about how we as believers should live in a dark and depraved world. Grab your Bibles and let's jump in. Well, go ahead and remain standing and grab your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. It's good to be with you all today. And again, happy Mother's Day to you mothers who are here. Uh, I was also very blessed to have a wonderful, wonderful mother. A lot of you knew her. Uh, just a great, I miss her today. And I'm thankful for the role that she had in my life. And, and I know you moms, you know that well. I love watching my wife as the mother of our children. It's been the, one of the greatest roles for her and uh, seeing our kids respond to her. We're going to begin our study today at verse 18, as Paul picks up from where we left off a couple of weeks ago. Um, For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews ask for signs, and Greeks search for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, to Jews, a stumbling block, and to Gentiles, foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brethren, that there are not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised, God has chosen the things that are not so that he may nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast before God. But by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus who became the wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. You may be seated. One of the verses that I have memorized over the years and I think about often is Isaiah chapter 55, verse 8 and 9, and I would encourage you to also memorize these. They come in handy a lot in your life, where the Lord says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. These two verses really are illustrated over and over again as you go through the Scripture. 
But not only have they proven over and over according to the scripture, I think they've been proven over in my life, and I would assume they've been proven over and over again in your life that God's wisdom is not our wisdom, that God's ways are not our ways, his thoughts are not our thoughts, that he is a wiser God. Aren't you glad for that? That he is wiser than us. And nowhere is this so truly found as in the message of the cross. The gospel message in itself is something which you see the wisdom of God, which he brings out here. But I was been thinking about this, and I realized that as I was putting it down, that the gospel is profoundly simple in its message, yet it's unfathomably deep in its meaning. It is impossible to delve into the depth of its meaning without first grasping the simplicity of it. And though the message of this message of the gospel is so simple that a small child can grab a hold of it, it requires supernatural power and the working of grace, working through humility and faith to really receive its truth into your heart. It's, it's a marvelous thing. Jesus once said in Matthew 18, 3, truly I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever then humbles himself as this child, he is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Many years ago, when we were in our little red church over in southeast Portland, it was a great time in our church. A number of people had come to faith in Christ, and there was one woman who was very, very excited about the Lord, and she started dragging her mother to church. Well, her mother was quite old, and uh, as she came to church, you could tell she wasn't happy to be there. She was sour, she was bitter, she was grumpy, and no matter what you did, you tried to talk to her, she had no business, like, I don't know what in the world I'm doing here in church. I have no business being here. And I remember looking at her every day and going, oh, she's not happy today. She's not happy today. I never did see her happy. And uh, one, one day, uh, her, her daughter said, Pastor, I'd really appreciate it if you talked to my mom, that you took her aside in private, and you just kind of explained the gospel to her. And I was a little bit cynical. I think, well, she's old right now. I don't know if she's going to receive anything that I have to say. She doesn't seem too thrilled to be with me. But nonetheless, we set aside a time after we were doing three services in this little church. And I was kind of tired. And we kind of, after service, said, well, let's, let's go in and let's talk. And so I brought her into my office. And I began to talk to her about the gospel, the problem of guilt, the problem of sin and of death. And we talked about God who is holy and righteous and true. We talked about the wages of sin being death and the judgment of God. And we talked about the love and the grace of God provided for us through Jesus Christ. And I talked about, you know, the, what the death and, of Jesus really meant on the cross and, and that in the name of Jesus, there's forgiveness of sin. There's a promise of eternal life. And we talked about Jesus and her need for a savior and her need to repent. And I didn't know whether she was getting anything at all. And all of a sudden I was looking at her and tears were coming out of her eyes. And I said, what, how are you? Are, are you okay? She says, well, this is what I want. She said, this is what I want. And so with great joy, I led her in a sinner's prayer that day, and she gave her life to Jesus. And it was amazing because her life was radically transformed. That moment, it's as if you see that verse in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, therefore, if anyone's in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things pass away. Behold, all things become new. And immediately I saw a change in her. Immediately her countenance changed. You could see a glow in her eyes. You could see all of a sudden, she began to put a smile on her face. I don't think I ever saw her again without a smile on her face. And week after week, as they brought her to church, she was just delighted in the Lord. And you could tell, and it wasn't too much longer 
that we found out that she had a cancer and that she was not, things weren't looking good. And no matter what, she just kept coming to church, coming to church, making her way in, always smiling, always sharing, uh, entering into worship and stuff. And seeing that, that wonderful change in her life. And it was, it was an amazing thing because we, uh, uh, when she went into a, a care facility, she wanted to have a celebration of life. And she just said, I want to be able to tell everybody about Jesus. And she told everyone about Jesus that she met. Everyone knew her. So, so she's the one that talks about Jesus all the time. And so when she finally went to die, there was a number of us who went over to her place and we stood around her bed and we worshiped the Lord together. And we were with her when she slipped into glory. And that's one of the, the, the stories that will never, ever leave my mind. Just watching that transforming work of God in a person just find this very simple message that God, through his supernatural power, has the ability to change us and to make us new. And I knew at that moment it was a miracle. It wasn't because of my cleverness and it wasn't because of my eloquence. I understood that. I understood that as I shared the message that day that the Holy Spirit came to her and opened her heart to conviction and to grasp the truth of the simple message so that she was able to say, this is what I want for my life. And as I think about it, I realize that that wasn't just Joan's story. It's also my story as well. There's a lot of other stories like in this room, I'm sure, that can share. There was something remarkable what happened to me that day when my heart was open to the truth of God's word. And I began to understand what Jesus did for me and how he gave his life for me. You see, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but it is the wisdom of God for those who believe. And we see it over and over and over again. When Paul first brought the gospel to, the, to Corinth, we saw that he brought it to a very diverse, very pluralistic, paganistic culture with all of its diversity of religions and philosophies, unique schools of thought. And he came there to the center of philosophical debate. You know, Corinth, like all the Grecian culture, had a, had a heritage of the philosophers like Aristotle and Plato and Socrates. And when you hear that word philosophy, it means really phileo. Phileo means love, and Sophia is wisdom. So philosophy is the love of wisdom. It's man's quest to seek answers to life, seeking the purpose and the meaning of life. And that was Corinth. It was steeped with philosophical debate from everywhere. It was a wealthy community. It was an educated culture. It was a center for the arts, you know, for the theaters and all of the plays. Uh, as such, it was an egocentric culture that sought to fulfill the carnal desires of men, all kinds of sexual pleasure. There were temples to the gods and goddesses. There were prostitutes to the gods. Yet it was much like you could say, maybe like our culture today, but the difference would be that it had no Christian heritage at all. It had no history of the Judeo-Christian ethic. It was something that was completely new when the Apostle Paul brought it to them. Yet despite all these realities of this carnal and worldly culture, when Paul comes and he brings this message of the gospel, there are many who heard it and they received it, they believed it, and their lives were forever changed. God did a work in these people's lives. And the moment they believed, their eyes and ears were open to understanding spiritual truths they had never been able to understand before. They were given insights into understanding Scripture. 
And the Holy Spirit was moving in among them with great riches of blessings and spiritual gifts. They were filled with love. They were filled with joy and community. There was unity. The people loved God. They loved one another. They were sold out on Jesus. Jesus was the center of everything that they were and everything that they did. And the church at Corinth had a very good beginning, but it sometimes happened. As time began to pass, they began to neglect their dependency and their focus on Jesus himself as the center. And they allowed themselves to be carried away with the spiritual apathy, swayed by the culture around them, now moving back to a more carnal attitude as they begin to look at life now long, no longer through the lens of the cross, but now through the lens of their own flesh. And as a result, the church became more self-centered and carnal-driven. There were disunity, there were factions and splits and cliques. The people, it was played out in a variety of ways. The people began serving their own carnal agendas rather than that of Christ. They were bickering, they were arguing over even their preferred teachers. They were offending others, being easily offended. They were unforgiving without grace, holding grudges. They're proud. They became selfish, ambitious, critical, jealous of others. There was sexual sin, even incest in the church. Some believers were suing unbelievers in civil courts, bringing shame to the name of Christ. Some were abusing their own freedoms at the expense of others. Some were even abusing the Lord's table through gluttony and through drunkenness. And some were abusing the spiritual gifts, which became a source of spiritual pride. So you see, when Jesus loses his centrality in your life and you begin reverting back to that carnal way of thinking of the world around you, it can get ugly really fast. All of a sudden, a church that was meant to glorify God now becomes something that begins to give a question to his very name. And we've seen that over and over again throughout the years in churches who, who lose their way and lose their focus and Jesus is no longer center. Where all of a sudden now they're beginning to look at things in their own understanding. But with regard to the competitive disunity that was taking place over their teachers, Paul had asked the question, well, is Christ divided? I mean, were you baptized in the name of Paul or Peter or anyone else? No, this is we're baptized in the name of Jesus. It's for Jesus that we come. For Christ, he said in verse 17, did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel not in cleverness of speech, so that the cross of Christ would not be made void. When we live for Christ and we gain the mind of Christ, we come to realize that it really is no longer about me anymore. Now it's about him. That's when the Christian life really takes shape. When all of a sudden I realize it's not about me. It's about him. It's about his purpose in my life. But now as a disciple, I'm here to represent him and all that I do. And so Paul reminded them that their very own salvation was not from their own human reasoning, according to the wisdom of God, but according, but, but according to the wisdom of God, God came to them with a supernatural work that opened up their eyes. And so he says to them in verse 18, for the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Paul is saying here, the word of the cross is foolishness. Now, the root word there is, is Mariah, but it's, it's the word we get moron. But it means it's, it's silliness. It's absurd. It's nuts to the unbelievers. It makes no logical sense. 
To those who don't believe, the message of a cross is actually ridiculously stupid. Now, today, we know this, that we wear crosses around our necks as jewelry. We have crosses that decorate our churches made of fine, uh, you know, uh, fine materials. But in that day, the cross was a means of capital punishment. It was designed for criminals. It was the electric chair, the gas chamber of, this, of its time. Can you imagine if we now wore little electric chairs around our, our necks and said, well, this, <laughs> I want to tell you about Jesus. And here, this is the way right here. Here's the electric chair. Or I'll give you a little, little picture of a little gas chamber there. If, it, if you can think about it, maybe this could be for you if you're so lucky. You know, you could come to the Lord. But in that day, there, it was that means of capital punishment. So the message of the cross and that culture especially was absolutely absurd. To the unbelieving mind, it's like, what good could possibly come from a cross? How could a cross be an instrument of life? What sense does it make to serve a crucified, a crucified king? How can someone uh, dying a criminal's death save me? So matter, no matter how clearly you try to explain it or define it, the cross makes no sense to the natural mind apart from the working of God's grace and power. It will never make sense. That's why he says, but for us, and I notice he says here, we are being saved. Not that we were saved, but we're being saved. The cross is the power of God for salvation. I think of Paul's great declaration in Romans 1.16, where he says, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Listen, this same simple message that we talk about at the cross can be told to two people with two different responses. Some will hear it and they'll look at you cross-eyed. It's like, what in the world are you talking about? But others will hear it and all of a sudden you'll see there's something going on inside. There's a transformation taking place. They'll receive it, they'll hear it, they'll receive it, and they'll be so glad to be saved. The point Paul is making is this. Grasping the meaning of the cross with regard to salvation is not about being smart enough. It's not about being so brilliant that you can understand it. No, understanding the message is a supernatural working of God's power that has to be done in the heart. The natural man cannot will not understand it or comprehend it. It's like speaking a language that they do not know. They're deaf to it. They're blind to it. You cannot expect a blind man to see or a deaf man to hear. When you look at the world today as believers, you say, man, they're crazy. This is nuts. Well, the reason is they cannot see. They're blind. They, they're, they're lost. You know, they, they're deaf to the things of God. For us who see it so clearly, we look and go, oh, but man, how could they not see this? It doesn't make any sense. But it, because it takes that spiritual awakening. That's why we sing that song, and I once was blind, but now I see. I was lost, but now I'm found. That, that was us. That was our condition. We had no ability to see or understand God until he opened our eyes to see. And that is a work of grace, people. Not only that, but that is the way that God had designed it and purposed it to be. Notice that Paul quotes here from Isaiah 29, where he says, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise 
and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. In that verse, I mean, the Lord's promising that there will come a time when he will absolutely destroy the wisdom of the wise, the cleverness of humanity, he's saying, would be set aside. It was going to, he was going to do something that the natural mind, that the human intellect and reason of man would not be able to grasp apart from his own intervention. The thing of that verse comes back to me again and again from Zechariah 4, 6, where it says, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. And so Paul asks the questions of verse 20, where is the wise man? You know, where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? And again, here's Corinth. It boasted in all of its great philosophical wisdom, basking in the wisdom of the philosophers and the philosophies. But Paul comes out and says, well, where is the wise men of this world? You know, where are all the great philosophers? Where is the scribe of the age, the scholars of the world? Where's the great intellectual debaters, the great orators, those who can argue the world's case for its wisdom? But who can understand the mind of God? What answers do they have they provided for the plight of humanity? And how do they answer life's questions? Can they really answer the question of origins or the meaning and the purpose of life? Can the natural man with his great intellect and wisdom stand up against the wisdom of God? Can they really solve the problem of guilt and of shame? You know, the condition of the human heart. Blaise Pascal, the mathematician of the 1600s said, there is a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of every person which cannot be filled but by any created thing, but only by God the creator. Can this world fill this gap inside, this God-shaped vacuum? No, at best what it does is it offers its religions, its humanism. You know, humanism, I believe, is the doctrine of our age. It's the godless belief that humanity is able to save himself, that we will save ourselves through reason, through intellect, and through technology. As we watch our world continuing to build its tower up to the heavens and defiance of God in the wisdom of man, has God not made foolish the wisdom of this world? But the wisdom of God, who can comprehend it? Isaiah chapter 40, verse 13, who has directed the spirit of, of the Lord? Or who, or as his counselor has informed him? With whom did he consult with? And who gave him understanding? And who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and informed him of the way of understanding? What we notice is with all of our achievements, all that we see, our education, of all of our wisdom and our intellect and our knowledge and the development of the latest and the greatest medicines and psychotherapies and technologies, we still have diseases. We still have wars and famines and murder and hatred and theft. There's still sexual immorality and millions of abortions and sexual diseases and greed and corruption and abuses of poverty and depression and suicides and drug and alcohol abuse addictions and broken families. We have a greater need for prisons than ever, but now we're refusing to use them. It's just kind of a crazy thing. Death is a destiny of every man still. And there's, this is all the wisdom the world has to offer and throwing at us. And yet you say, wow, this is the wisdom of man. Man seems to be able to do anything but change his own nature. That in his resistance to the truth of God, people only become more hateful, 
They become more violent, more oppressive. Man will really save himself, and I would say, really? Well, how's that working for you as you look out at the world? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Verse 21, for since the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased to the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. What a contrast is this wisdom of God, that the world through its own wisdom did not come to know God. In the foolishness of man, in his own wisdom, he despises God, he dismisses God, denies God, and through means of knowledge and science and technology, he seeks to create a better world without God. And so science is all the answers. Here's the problem with science, that science by its own def definition is limited. It's limited to that which is observable, measurable, testable, and empirical. But what about those things which can't be tested, observed, or measured? Are they not real? I mean, how do you measure matter? What is it that fills the void and holds the molecules together? Well, Colossians 1.17 says he is before all things, and, him, and in him all things hold together. Well, science, science is the answer. You know, it's kind of interesting. You think about it even with biology. You know, for ever since the beginning of time, all there's ever been is just two genders. That's all there's ever been. Now in the wisdom of man, we got a whole bunch to choose from. You can kind of simply choose it. And now they're giving us the information that men can have babies. And I'm thinking, oh, well, we're supposed to go, wow, that's amazing. Wow, that's really amazing. Wow, watch out. That's the wisdom of the world. That's the wisdom of this world. You, know, you talk about the question of origins and who brings the world into existence and how and where and how did this all come about? You know, who, who was it who brought life and how did it begin? What about purpose and what about all those things? And the best of man's wisdom can come up with is these silly theories and, you know, that they call facts. They talk about a big bang, you know, caused by what? From where? From who? From how? I mean, how did that even happen? And this cosmic accident, this explosion that brings order to a universe out of chaos. I mean, how do you do that? One huge cosmic accident with infinite or, uh, coincidences set into motion by which we now have order where there is disorder? Or you talk about foolishness. I mean, the first, you know, there's parasites, there's amoebas, and then all of a sudden there's monkeys, and finally it comes down to us. Problem is, where do you find the missing link in all this? I mean, you talk about faith in the absurd. I mean, this is, this is the wisdom of man. In order of the universe, we say, well, it just kind of accidentally happened. It just kind of showed up one day, and we began to live and go on. And, and I think about things like, you know, the, the Earth rotation at just the perfect access, spinning at just the right speed, 1,000 miles per hour, 24 hours a day. The length of the days are just right to sustain life and plant growth. If the days were longer, the vegetation would burn. If the, days were, if the nights were longer, the vegetation would freeze. So the Earth's temperature is just at the right temperature, or the distance from the moon is just at the right distance. You know, just for gravity to keep the oceans within its bounds and the tides are kept in shape. All these things that you look at, you know, Lord, and one by one by one, you go, Lord, look what you've done. Look what you've done. Now, what you see is you go out at night and you begin to look at the stars and the heavens and you see the moon and you go, oh, Lord, look what you've made. Look what you've made. Look at all that you've done for this. In the daytime, you look at the mountains and the oceans and the trees and the river. You can tell I love the creation. I love to see what God's done. I just, it's so amazing to me because creation screams out as, as God is saying, look at me. Look at what I can do. 
Look at the power that I have. And the world says there's no creator, there's no designer. Foolishness. Has God not made foolish the wisdom of the world? Think about the body, the hands, the legs, the eyes, the ears, the mind, the emotions. You know that we can see with our eyes and feel with our hands and hear with our ears. We can walk and we can talk and we can communicate. The intricacy of the human brain, of the human emotions, that we have the ability to love and to feel, to, to hate and to know joy and anger, to experience what it is to know guilt from right and wrong, from a conscience that's been given to us. All these things to say, well, just random coincidence. Has God not made foolish the wisdom of the world? What is behind the creativity demonstrated by arts and music? You know, I think of Paul, again, writing in Romans chapter 1, he says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness, because that which is known about God is evident within them. For God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world has invisible attributes, his eternal power, divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools, and they exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for the image and form of corruptible man and of birds and of four-footed animals and the crawling creatures. Man's wisdom... Man's wisdom says it's just an accident, just one big cosmic accident. Has God not made foolish the wisdom of this world? Psalm 14.1 says, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. See, my problem with atheism is that it requires too much faith to believe it. And when I say that, it's, I mean, absurd faith to believe it. Because Christianity is, is not blind faith, it's a reasonable faith that has substance, it's testified in a book that God has given to us, by which we can see atheism is absurd, it's ridiculous, if you look at it at face value. But to a wacky, wacky, foolish world, God was well pleased in his wisdom to save man through this foolish message of the cross. Fool's wisdom, why? Because God, in his complete sovereign wisdom, made the decision that people would never discover him through their mind, through their intellect, and their own reason. Instead, he comes to the humble, he comes to the broken, to the poor, to the destitute, and God chooses to reveal himself through his only begotten son, a crucified savior, who suffered and died on the cross for my sin, for your sin, so that whosoever believes in him would not perish, but have eternal life. In him, there's forgiveness of sin. Wow. This simple message that the world calls absurd is preached by weak, infallible people to other weak, infallible people, has power to eternally save all who hear and believe it. And to the world, they say this is foolishness. But to us who are being saved, we see and we understand this is the wisdom of God. Colossians 2, 2 says, in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And verse 22 says, for indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified to Jews, a stumbling block and the Gentiles foolishness. But to those who are being called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, 
the power of God and the wisdom of God. Yeah, the Jews, they looked for signs. Oh, they witnessed all the miracles that Jesus did, but they came to and said, oh, we want to see the signs. You see, what they're looking for is their own idea of what they want their Messiah to be. They want their Messiah to be the champion who will come and overthrow the yoke of all their oppressors and sit upon the throne of David. And certainly there's a truth element to that. They look for signs and Jesus said to them, well, this generation is a wicked generation. It seeks for a sign and yet no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah. You see, they say they want a sign. This is a sign he says, I'll give to you. I'll give to you to the death and the resurrection of my, my son. The only, by way, by, only way by which man can be saved. So Christ then becomes the stumbling block, the chief cornerstone. The Greeks, the Gentiles, those non-Jews, they search for wisdom. And the belief that with greater wisdom and knowledge, men would finally come to discover the meaning and the purpose of life. To the Gentile mindset, death on the cross could only mean defeat, not victory. The idea of an almighty God who would come to this earth and die on a cross for the sin of man was absolutely, as Dr. Spock would say, illogical. It could never be. They boasted in their thinking and their philosophers. They boasted in the arts and the music and the, and the mathematics and the politics. I think of Acts 17 where there Paul at, at Mars Hill in Athens and he goes among the philosophers and he begins to explain to them, listen, I know all about you Greek philosophers, about what you say. He says, in history, these were times of ignorance. But now God is doing something completely different. And he wasn't suggesting that they didn't know anything because he knew that the thinkers actually had many achievements. However, their greatest wisdom could still not enable them to find God and experience his salvation. To the natural man, the cross is ugly. It is hideous. It is offensive. It is a symbol of weakness, of impotence, and of defeat. But for us who are being called, both Jews and Gentiles, our eyes have been opened. This is the power of God. In verse 25, he says, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Now, in saying that the foolishness of God is wiser than men, Paul is not implying that God could ever be foolish or that he could ever be weak. Instead, he is making a point that human wisdom and human strength and intellect by comparison will never be of any measurement against God. That the measure of the cross as a means to save sinners sounds absolutely foolish to those who believe. Why? Because they believe that in their own wisdom, in their own mind, they can find ultimate reality, that they can make the best way of life. Even in their man-made religions, they design gods who will accept them only if they are good enough to meet him. But the greatest wisdom of natural man cannot even compare to God's infinite, magnificent wisdom. The smartest and the brightest in the world cannot comprehend. Paul says in verse 26, for consider your calling, brethren, that there are not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world that despise God has chosen the things that are not so that he may nullify the things that are so that no man may boast before God. The believers in Corinth had taken their eyes off of Jesus. They began now going back to their own wisdom, looking at life through their own carnal lens and they're becoming foolish in it. 
And Paul says, you know what kind of persons you were when God called you out of darkness. You have to remember that he didn't accept you as his children because you were so educated. He didn't accept you as his children because you were so talented and brilliant and so beautiful and so powerful. That's not why it, it wasn't because of your nobility and it wasn't because of your social status. It wasn't because you're irresistibly charming and you're so cool. It's like, man, I got to have you. Thank you, Lord. You, I know why you chose me. I'm just so cool. No, this is, it's none of those things. If anything, all these things were the hindrances that kept you from the wisdom of God. No, they were never the things that brought you to God or what brought God to you. God called them not because of who or what they were, but in spite of who they were, through them he demonstrates his perfect wisdom, that he chooses to use the weak things of this world to shame the wise, that he would choose to use the base, the despised things, to nullify the things that aren't and those things that are. The religious leaders, you remember, they were really offended with Jesus. Now, why did he, in the world did he pick these guys as his disciples? I mean, in their minds, if Jesus was really the Messiah, he would have picked smart people. He would have picked people that were really had a, had a name for themselves. They were influential. They were the wealthy and the, the elite. But God chose to reveal himself to the humble and to the weak. Jesus once prayed this. He said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and the intelligent and have revealed them to infants. God doesn't seek out people as the world seeks out people. He's not impressed with the movie stars and the celebrities. He's not impressed with the scholars of fame and with those who are rich and the famous. It's like, those are not the things that impress God. No, what he looks and he chooses to reveal himself to the humble, to the contrite, to the poor in spirit. Regardless of your worldly position, he comes and the truth is this, that a, a simple, uneducated, untalented, bumbling Christian who has trusted Jesus Christ as their Savior is immeasurably wiser than the most brilliant PhD who scoffs at the gospel. That the most simple believer who has come to know the forgiveness and the love and the grace and the mercy and the hope of God has assurance of eternal life according to God's wisdom. On the other hand, the unbelieving PhD knows nothing beyond his books, his own mind, his own experience. He sees nothing beyond this life. He cannot be considered anything but foolish in the eyes of God. Why? Why does God do it this way? Well, he tells us, so that no man will be able to say to himself, I did it. I saved myself. Ephesians 2.8 for by grace you have been saved through faith, and not of yourselves, that is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. None of us are here because we're smart enough or good enough. He did it by his love and his mercy. Our eyes were opened. Verse 30, by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us the wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Paul says it's his doing. This is the work of God, the wisdom of God. 
And Jesus is the wisdom of God. The cross is the wisdom of God. In Christ, we are made righteous. In Christ, we are now sanctified by his blood, set apart for his purpose. In Christ, we've been redeemed. We've been purchased of God. We're now his property. Because we're smart enough, we're good enough? No, totally by the mercy and grace of God. The design of God in making wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, redemption, dependent upon union in Christ and union with Christ, dependent not on our merit, but on his good pleasure, is that we should glory only in him, that our confidence should be in him and not in ourselves, that all the glory of our salvation should be ascribed to him and not to us. Jeremiah the prophet once wrote these words, Thus says the Lord, Let not a wise man boast of his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast of his might. Let not a rich man boast of his riches. But let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth, for I delight in these things, declares the Lord. You know, it's, it's really almost sometimes hard for us to grab a hold of this. The fact is, is that we're here this morning, those of us who believe, we're here because of our weakness, not because of our brilliance. We're here because in the world's eyes, it could be foolish, but God sees it as the wisdom. We're here because of his grace by which he has loved us and opened up our hearts. You know, to the world, you know, they see us and they think, man, these people are ignorant. They're just, they're just weak and impotent. And to the world, we're kind of the scourge of the earth. You know, we're kind of pathetic. They see us as being the fools. And we look at it and we say, well, it is interesting that in knowing Jesus, I know, I know the purpose of life. I know why. I know where it all goes. I have a future, but most importantly in Jesus, I know forgiveness, and I have a clean conscience. I've been delivered from the power of sin and death, given the promise of eternal life, and I know my purpose, and I know my meaning. Has God not made foolish the wisdom of the world? You see, the simplicity of this message is so simple, a child can grasp it, but it's so simple, the most intelligent will never be able to understand. So that God would say, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. You know, where is your confidence, believer? See, Paul's point is this. If you want to go back to the reasoning of the world and you want to be caught up in the reasoning of the world, where will it lead you? If you want to be caught up in the carnality of the day and kind of get caught up where everyone else is at and where they're going, And you think of the foolishness of so many in our day, they think, well, we just got to make the gospel message more palatable. We just got to kind of make it, you know, pleasing. So we use our marketing strategies and our gimmicks to get people. And I can just shake my head and go, foolishness, foolishness, foolishness. Because this message of the gospel is so powerful. When I look at the world, and I see it a lot today, I know you do too, I see foolishness. But it's what you would expect out of a people who don't know God. 
And I ask God, God, give me perspective here. I see things so differently as a believer, and you do too. And I think of a world, they're blind, they're deaf, they can't hear God. How do you want me to communicate to this world around me? What I've come up with this is the same way that it was for me, through a simple, simple message demonstrated by the power of the Holy Spirit by which God can forever change lives. Isn't that amazing? God changes us according to the wisdom of God. He gives us sight to see and ears to hear. We are a blessed people. Thanks for listening to this week's study in the book of 1 Corinthians. If you're ever in the Portland area, we would love to have you visit for one of our services. For more information about our church, you can visit our website at ccseportland.com. We hope you've been blessed by this study. Stay tuned for our next series coming soon.